We're delighted to say this week's episode is brought to you by our friends at Brewing Folk. Brewing Folk celebrates all the people who visit Verdant Brewing Co. and its taproom. White Rabbit will be collaborating with Verdant this year, and we can highly recommend their beers. Find out more at brewingfolk.co or order yourself something to drink from verdantbrewing.co. My start of the podcast book recommendation this week is a book that came out a few years ago and I think it really deserves a wider audience because it tackles what happened when women love music that can be, or definitely is, problematic. Full disclosure, I have a chapter in it about Pulp's dodgy lyrics called You Want Something to Play With, Baby. The book's called Under My Thumb, Songs That Hate Women and the Women That Love Them. It's an anthology published by Repeater Books, edited by journalist Brian E. Jones and Eli Davis. It's a great mix of writers and subjects. Season one songbook guest Stephanie Phillips on Phil Spector, Kelly Robinson on Murder Ballads, and Fiona Sturgis on ACDC, who she calls the worst. Their songs are populated by strippers, prostitutes, and young men with apparently unvanquishable erections. They really are appalling. Man, I love ACDC. It came out in 2017 and is published, as I said, by Repeater. And now, a proper welcome. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Jude Rogers, journalist and author of The Sound of Being Human, How Music Shapes Our Lives, published by White Rabbit Books. My guest today is a ridiculously busy music journalist, interviewer and Radio 4 broadcaster and presenter whose regular series, Notes on Music, has recently taken in the subjects of the baritone voice, bells and cars and girls. She also runs the talking shop at the Green Man Festival and works as an A&R, having helped sign the amazing self-esteem to fiction records in recent years, which has worked out pretty well. Her first non-fiction book, Sad Songs, is published later this year, published by Quirkus Books. My guest today is Laura Barton. Laura, how on earth are you? <laughs> I am, I've had a bit of a uh, shambolic journey to the studio, but I'm very happy to see you, Jude. Yeah. We are here. We're talking about music and music books are all going to be... Very soothing. Very soothing. Now, Laura, we have known each other for many years. I first encountered you as the deputy editor of the Oxford University student newspaper when we were both, you know, kids from state schools, slightly terrified of what we'd let ourselves into. Yeah. And you were one of the few non-terrifying <laughs> journalists I met there. Um, I've written in my book how I did one music review there, not for you and then run away. Anyway, um, you're from Wigan, near Wigan. Mm -hmm. You went to state school, as I said. You spent a lot of your life as a journalist around people of great wealth and privilege, as, you know, a lot of us have. Mm. What do you bring to the job, Laura? Something <laughs> like your boss. Um, I think you must be quite similar in that you develop the ability to shapeshift a little bit. I think if you have a state school background and you understand the workings of an institution like Oxford, or for me it was... I was a staff writer at The Guardian for 10 years. Mm. And you and I think you probably learn how to read people and read a room and see the people who are uncomfortable. Yeah. And sometimes you have to work against your desire to, to always make everyone feel okay because you know what it's like to not feel okay in a room. <laughs> but maybe that, uh, I don't want to say it's sensitivity, but I, I, but I hope it's a compassion for people, maybe. That sounds like a good skill to have being a journalist, basically. <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. You're right about shape-shifting, you know. My accent always wanders around as well. Same, you know. same, same. I think I sound more Welsh when I'm speaking to you. Anyway, <laughs> um, your style is very distinctive. It's very poetic, ruminative, but also, you know, very journalistic and not sentimental or uh, emotional, as I know you and I have been called because we dare to write oh. about emotional reactions to music. Um, 
I love writing about music very personally, but I've often been told to cut it out by editors sometimes. Um, obviously, I filled my book with it instead. Um, have you had to fight against any editors um, putting that stuff in? Obviously, there's a place for this stuff. It doesn't have to be in there. But I was just wondering if you've had to fight against editors too. I think so. I think when I first started at The Guardian, and I, you know, to a certain extent, I didn't know what I was doing. I wasn't writing. I didn't write about music for about five years mm. because I loved it too much almost. But um, I, w- I think in those days and you will recall this too, it was, the thing was to be nasty about things in the funniest way possible. You know, Charlie Brooker is an example of like the consummate writer in a way that could be absolutely withering. And it was sort of everyone who knew about enemy writers, that kind of thing. And I, it just didn't sit well with me. And I, for a long time, thought maybe that's all you can, mm. the only way now to write about music. Um, and I think I was very lucky. I had an editor, Michael Han, who, um, who asked me to write a column which sprung out of emails that we would have together about how music sort of permeates our lives. Mm. So I was really lucky with Han, but other write, other editors, I think they just think you're getting it wrong and you don't understand. Mm. And I'm sure you have the same thing. And you're like, actually, no, a lot of people do think about music this way. Mm. It's just that, you know, the norm had been, hello, here are all the, the facts that I know about music and I'm going to wear them like a cod piece. And, yeah. you know... <laughs> I'm not interested in who produced, you know, I am interested to a degree, but you don't get extra points for knowing who produced this and in what studio and what they had for lunch, you know, unless it's relevant to the music. Yeah. And obviously that's being, we're the same age, more or less. Mm -hmm. Um, We are from slightly similar backgrounds. Your parents are much more into pop music than mine were, I know Mm -hmm. this. Um, But, you know... Strange enough, you know, I, I, I felt at different points of our career, we've sort of been, you know, is it, you know, Laura and Jude, they're sort of the same person, yeah. even though our music tastes are quite different. Obviously, there's yeah. a, it's a Venn diagram with crossing over in the middle. But um, it's a funny thing, isn't it, when there are few women in certain parts of music journalism. It's changing, obviously, which yeah. is fantastic. I always get you and Laura Snapes. And I think with Snapes, it's, again, in the sort of Venn diagram of taste. <laughs> she and I have quite similar taste, but actually also quite different. And also the simple fact that we're both called Laura. It's a little bit like I always get asked <laughs> to interview Laura Marling. And Laura Marling and oh, I... Oh, I do too. Yeah. Because she's always a girl, to, right? Uh, she's a Sorry, girl. Sorry, a girl, not a woman. She's a girl. <laughs> she's very much a girl. She's an innocent, blonde girl. And... Um, yeah, I think sometimes editors just go, Laura and, uh, oh, Laura, that's a nice combo. <laughs> but also, your tastes, I think, are slightly more folky than mine. And people yeah. always think I'm really folky. Yeah. And I think it's just sort of people often mistake me for being quite whimsical. I think because I'm quite softly spoken, that I must just love nothing more than walking through a field listening to Joan <laughs> Baez or Joni Mitchell. And um, and I, that's not really me at all. It's yeah, very we, strange. We've got to sort of fight against that a bit. You know, yeah, I love folk, but I like quite weird folk. And I yeah. also love loads of electronic music and ear-bleeding stuff as well, yeah. which people find quite weird. But well, you and it's I, okay if you're a bloke. That you well, exactly. <laughs> and you and I, when we first met back in London, post, I think I met you in a in a bar first in Oxford very briefly once oh you've better memory than me yeah Raul, Many years I think ago. it was and um, <laughs> but then you and I re-met at a strokes gig <gasps> yes in heaven, heaven the strokes gig yeah, yeah you that were... I had gone to not really 
for the strokes. I'd gone for the mouldy peaches who were supporting. Yeah. Mm. Whereas I was at the front for the strokes. Yeah. And that was one of the one of the only cool gigs of all time I've been to. I was wearing a red shirt. I was going to say you were wearing a red shirt. Red polyester shirt. I remember it so well. Black tie. Yes, I thought you were so cool. It was one of those shirts you buy at a charity shop and it might have got slightly undone, which is not intentional. <laughs> um, Fabrizio from the strokes, can't believe I'm saying this on a podcast, <laughs> uh, in the middle of the gig, pointing down to me and said, I say, Fiona, your top's undone, love. And um, You I don't undid think another it, button. And it wasn't like, come onto the stage, lovely. It was it was fine. I was like, oh, how mortifying. But it was it was fine. That was a great gig. Oh, it was. Oh, long time, long time long ago. Long time ago. Laura. No, anyway. Um, I want to talk briefly about your interviewing style because, you know, you write these beautiful personal things and your um, series, Notes of Music, has these amazing personal reflections of music. The, the episode about Bells that came out just before Christmas uh, 2022 was just so wonderful. The baritone voice one with the bits about Bill Callahan. Wonderful. But, as an interviewer, you can be so brilliantly skewering of people's personalities. I remember an early interview of yours with Johnny from Razorlight, which I looked up <laughs> on the way here today. It so subtly skewered his personality without being unkind. You described him as all angles and cigarette smoke, chicken legs in his woman's jeans. And your amazing um, interview with Iggy Pop, you described his voice as it has grown warm and lazy like melting tarmac. It's just absolutely perfect. Who's influenced you as a writer over the years? Uh, a lot of poets. I really, and one of the things that I love about radio and writing for radio is, is it's sort of, you're constantly thinking of the rhythm. And when I'm writing anything, it's always been the rhythm that's been so important to me. I'll sometimes leave little stars so that I know that something has to oh. go there and I know yeah, I quite often know it. <laughs> One of my favourite radio producers always laughs because he says he knows he knows which consonant I'm going to want to go for, oh, or you wow. know what the rhythm. Anyway, um, so and then you know the obvious ones, the the Solnits, the Didians. I think finding those female writers who um, who write about lots of different subjects and somehow mm. draw them all together. I love that. More recently, I loved uh, C.J. House's The Crane Wife. Oh, right. Um, it's a great book, but the, the the original essay, which was, I think, in the Paris Review, yeah. I've never read a piece of writing that so absolutely captured how I feel about the world. It was one of those absolutely I have to sit down kind of moments. So those kinds, there's something that's, I think as I've got older, I've become a writer who is less concerned about pleasing other people. And, it, and that simplifies mm. your sentences. Because yeah. I think, to go back to that rhythm thing, sometimes when you're younger, you're trying to please people by making it delightful and pleasurable. Mm. And as you get older, you just sort of you say think, it I don't give a shit anymore. Yeah, I'm going to exactly. do whatever. Yeah, I'm yeah. the same. <laughs> <laughs> and um, two things before we get onto the questions, because mm -hmm. we could, this podcast, I'm sorry, listeners, could be about 20 hours long with us just, fine. just gabbing on. Um, A&R stuff and self-esteem mm -hmm. um, and your forthcoming book. Tell mm -hmm. us a little bit about those. Because um, you were... You know, self-esteem success is obviously all down to you. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, I am the root of all of them. <laughs> it genuinely makes me want to cry even talking about her because I love her so much and her music means so much to me. I think it's really interesting that this album picked up where the first one didn't. And I remember just going around begging people to, I remember Q, begging Q to interview her and be, you know, I think people thought, she's a pop star and she's female and what is this? Why is she wearing a Boots Advantage card dress and is it quite That's working? Amazing. Yeah, and, and then, and she almost got dropped from her label for that. Um, so I signed her publishing, not not her label. And um, she almost got dropped after that record because people just didn't connect to it. And then the second one just really did. And um, to see people, 
to see a lot of the same men who dismissed it the first time watching her, particularly at Green Man, when she had mm. a real... I was breakthrough. There. It was amazing. It was so good. And seeing grown men crying, watching her. And there was even a friend of mine who is a musician. And, and I remember he'd said to me, when I played him self-esteem, he said, is this your period music? <gasps> and then he saw her and he apologised to me because, mm. you know, she's, if anyone's listening and they haven't quite got it yet, and you get the chance to see her live, please mm. do. And listen to the lyrics. Oh, God. The lyrics are just incredible. Um and we we can't not talk about your book. Tell me about oh, the book. Um, so I mean, it's a very it's a long running labour of love. Um, and I first had the idea a long, quite a long time ago. Um, it's about sad music, um, and it's about why we like certain sad songs. But it's also it's a memoir, really. And I I hesitated to use that um, title for a long time, and I initially. Mm you know, veered away from writing about that. But it was, it's about sort of the worst time of my life when I had sort of, I got divorced and then I had a massive breakdown and I couldn't listen to music and I couldn't really write about music. And I thought, all of that is gone and what is my purpose now? And so I tried to sort of um, heal myself through music. I have a an awkward relationship with the word heal. But um, <laughs> where I went to the deep South of America and looked at different genres of music and how they approach sadness. So everything from soul to shape note singing to the blues and rock and roll. And um, uh, But yeah, there's a lot of me wanging on about myself as well as uh, the musicology. Oh, I have to say, if anybody um, hasn't read Laura's pieces in recent years, when she wangs on about herself, go and you know on The Guardian, just have a big search oh, and they're wonderful, as well as you're writing about music. Thank you. So on to the questions I ask everyone. Mm-hmm. Laura, who was or were the first music act, acts, artists, artists that you loved? The first album I owned was Paul Young's No Parlay. Oh, amazing. <laughs> Charity <laughs> Shop classic. Um, I still love that record. Um, What's on that record? Is whenever, wherever I lay my hat on that record. Yes, indeed. All, all, the, all the ones you'll all know. All the greats. All the greats, we should call them, are on that. Um, and sometimes I listen to them again. They're so 80s, but they're so infectious to me. Uh, then I loved, at a very young age, um, Simply Red. Who I stand by. Who you still love, I, I know. This is where our Venn diagram peels <laughs> apart, but it doesn't matter because people are allowed to like different things. Yes. Um, but my parents were, as you mentioned earlier, very into music mm. and so they listened to music all the time and, um, you know, everything from Van Morrison to doo-wop to, you know, um, God, I can't even think. They, they just listened to everything and they oh, still Laura, do. I, haven't men- I was going to mention your Van Morrison oh, interview as well. Mm. One of the greatest Van Morrison interviews ever, which lasted, how long was it, 20 minutes? I no. think it was 30, not even that, 13 minutes, 20 And you write seconds, about so. that experience of interviewing somebody whose music has been such a massive thing in your life. Mm. Please, please, please go and find that. It's exquisite. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I'm, I, so, yeah, I was, so we're, this is like 84, something like that, to Paul Young. Yeah. This is when I was into Wham, you're into Paul Young. Paul Young obviously singing on the Band-Aid single. Oh, that must have been a big God. thing for you. It, it really was. <laughs> I think he is one of the people who grips his headphones. I might just try that in the studio now <laughs> for sincerity when he's singing. And I love that. That's how I record all my radio <laughs> Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.
Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Who was the first music writer you loved? All the smash hits, gang. I mean, I know you're the same. And all all the good people are the same, I think. I mean, I um, I loved... I loved reading bits. I loved the. I loved every single element of that magazine. So bits was the front section yes. for for younger listeners. <laughs> yeah, sorry, yes. um, which was and it was because the magazine because the way it was designed, mm. which was, I don't know if it was letter set, but it was basically everything was just every corner was filled with a joke or yep. a little column or something like that, and mm-hmm. it was full of that kind of. Um, I think Andrew Harrison described, um, for who edited to select the nineties, um, described Mark Ellen style as acid Woodhouse, as <laughs> acid Peter Woodhouse, and, yeah. but that describes the, like people like Tom Hibbert, mm. Sean, um, oh, a little bit yeah, of Sean Patton, yeah. but kind of um, definitely Sylvia Patterson, mm-hmm. um, you know, so many people, you know. absolutely all of them, and then that a lot of that gang grad- graduated to Q and to some of the older magazines that I used to buy, you know, religiously, and I just the I just. The ability of someone like David Quantic to write a tiny little review and have you in stitches and have chosen the words so beautifully. I'm not madly a reviewer, so whenever if there's a good reviewer, I'm just always in awe of it. Oh, David, David Quantic's column in Select Magazine was oh, also oh, just was classic. Um, Six Form Canteen, you know, regular. Yeah. What was the first music book you loved? Um, I do remember reading Marianne Faithfull's autobiography biography biography yeah they're um, faithful yes faithful um that i think my dad had been given and that was sort of an insight into um a wholly different world and what it is like to be a woman in that world and also the idea of the sort of unreliable narrator i later realized i think um so that and then also again i always remember hearing listening to um uh Mark Radcliffe, late night on the radio. And he would have literary guests on, namely Simon Armitage. Mm. And as someone who was a sort of poetry nerd and loved literature and loved music, to have all those things sort of woven together on what felt, even though it was on a national radio station, felt like a secret club. Yeah. It was... Radio One. Yeah. Yeah. It was was really magical. Them playing all kinds of weird new music and that felt so of our generation, so much of it, that... Um, yeah, that um, the sort of early Armitage poetry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of, it was they were like um, the equivalent of I want to say pop stars, but they were just part of the fabric. They were kind of indie musicians, weren't they? Mm. Him, Ian McMillan, who oh, yeah. I adore, and I've been on the Verb a couple of times. He's mm. probably Radio Three, and every time I am, I'm just like, oh, it's Ian McMillan. Do you know my first first thing I ever had on the radio was a poem. 
I wrote no. about Ian McMillan's voice that I sent in to Mark Radcliffe. Have you got it with you? Do you know no, it? No, I don't know. No, but it, it did describe his voice as being a bit like the toys you see in shop windows that have gone slightly <gasps> faded. Oh, my um, God, yes. Yeah, but um, yeah, that was read up by Mark and Mark and Lard. Mark, that is, Mark, I interviewed them once <gasps> for my sixth form magazine. Oh, my goodness. I was so shy. I just probably barely said it. I just sat there <laughs> laughing. But yeah, that, 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 that's, a, that's a piece that should be written about the importance mm. of poetry and that mix of... Mm. Um, you know, Radio 1 kind of mid-90s culture. It's not talked about in the Brit pop. Um, so on to today's book, mm-hmm. which you brought me, and I'm so glad you did. Um, this is A Little Devil in America by Hanif Abderakib. A book has been in my to-read pile since it got some really great reviews on its release in 2021. And now I've read it, goodness me, I see why. Um, Hanif is an American poet, essay writer and critic, who had written hugely acclaimed books before this one. His essay collection, They Can't Kill Us Until They Kill Us, was a Pitchfork, NPR and Esquire book of the year. Um, And Go Ahead in the Rain, Notes to a Tribe Called Quest, debuted in the New York Times bestseller list. This book subtitle is In Praise of Black Performance, and it is sectioned into five movements, each of them, except the last one, starting with a section deliciously called On Times I Have Forced Myself to Dance. It also takes in dance, theatre and magic, but so much music that it definitely qualifies as a songbook choice, taking in artists from Josephine Baker to Mary Clayton to the Wu-Tang Clan and so many more. So, Laura, how did you come across this book? I don't actually remember off the top of my head how I came across it, Um, but uh, I I think I was aware of his writing before and his poetry before. Again, I think he did something in the Paris Review. He did, yeah. Yeah. Um, So... A kind of he was one of those people whose writing I just loved, and then I saw he was doing this. I um, uh, I again, it's that sort of marriage of poetry and music, and and sort of also the drawing together of many different um subjects. Again, again, like Didion or Soul, mm, whatever mm. that I find. That's how my brain works. Mm. Um, and it's quite a thing in American publishing, but. N- not as much in British publishing. Obviously, there are, you know, essays yeah. have become much more of a, I hate to say, commercial thing in fiction, but, you know, a much more popular and well-known thing. I think it's a really interesting format, and, and I mm. think also um, that style of writing is also, um, I don't know if you read Amy Liptrop's The Instant, yes. yeah, which yeah, yeah. I loved, and actually more than The Outrun, and that is that sort of same magpie-ish approach to mm. writing. And I also think it's an art form that is a real two fingers to that very phallic, masculine novel. I'm going to write the longest novel in the world kind of thing. And it's <laughs> the actually, great novel. <laughs> yes. The great American, the great white American. Ex- exactly. Yes. <laughs> and yet, actually, women and um, people who aren't white and male, basically, <laughs> have really flourished in this other way of writing, mm, which I yeah. think is more reflective of how we read now and how a lot of us, a lot of us think, really. Yeah. Particularly in an age where we've been completely screwed by social media and yes things. so um yeah that was the attraction of it and so we're talking about the form of it the movements as i mentioned begin with sections that are influenced by sort of poetry slam streams of consciousness um i'm just going to hear me read. i've actually got the book here you can see <laughs> the, um you know the first on times i forced myself to dance there's no punctuation there are ampersands there are kind of names of things kind of just running through and you're just sort of on this you know I don't know, travelator of words and ideas and rhythms. Um, and, um, you know, it's it's interesting kind of, you know, obviously slam poetry and spoken word has become, again, a you know, a popular thing, kind of um, a 
commercial thing in recent years with people like Kay Tempest and, you know, all kinds of um, people who can play, you know, massive venues and sell them out. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, kind of that, then that kind of suggests this kind of connection between literature and music, which is, again, breaking down certain barriers, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, another one might be Alabaster de Plume, oh, who yeah. I absolutely love. Um, and again, if you get a chance to see Alabaster Life, please do. And I, I've never really seen why there should be that delineation. And, and maybe that part of that is, as we said, you know, that Mark and Lard kind of era where you just think everything is is language and everything is rhythm and mm. and it's exciting just to draw everything together. And I, there's something in the way that Hanif writes that's a very, to me, it's very physical and, and it holds... No, it, it has its own reason, if you see what I mean. So it, it doesn't pay any heed to how you should, how you ought to write a sentence. What is the polite mm. way to write a sentence? It's just like this is, this is the best way to express it because this is how I feel it. It's something very visceral about him. And you get a lot about um, you know his life, his family, um, mm. his early experiences in music. Um, you know that uh, just leap out with you in really interesting ways. Um, but also, it's very interesting and nuanced on so big mainstream artists like this brilliant stuff about Whitney Houston in this I had no idea that she wasn't played on you know so-called black radio stations in the 1980s in the US and I loved his observations about her performances of I want I want to dance with somebody about how Whitney Houston can't, she dance. can't dance I did go back to YouTube and watch her on top of the pops and she's sort of got this slightly robotic oh, she, nervousness she's got these sort of weird Bambi legs hasn't she that yeah. are just sort of knocked together I think um he's fascinating on the idea of what we expect, or particularly what what a white America expects from a black performer, yeah. a lot of it is tied to dance. We expect black performers to dance. And there's a lot about Soul Train. There's a lot about vaudeville dancers, people dying or collapsing on stage because they were meant to just dance till they dropped or perform mm. until they dropped. Um, and yeah, in those in those segments where he's saying um, about dancing himself, you know, there's also that thing about moonwalking. Mm. He's at the Islamic Center, and he moonwalks. And, and falls down the stairs, doesn't he? Um, these sort of f- failures in a way to be a, an, a, an approved black person, which mm. I think are, are sort of fascinating in themselves. And it's how um, a black person in performance has to be this sort of exceptional figure, mm. you know, which is it's something It's really interesting. You know, I'm, uh, on, the, on the episode in the season, which I talked to Danielle Smith about her brilliant book, about mm. her kind of... Um, her ex- experiences um, of music as she's growing up and also her engagement with, you know, black female pop, essentially. Um, that element just, you know, run through that as well. Um, and this idea of um, almost creating these sort of mythological figures. Hannah has spoken about this too, but almost divorce that performer from their humanity or their black yeah. lineage. And I, I don't know if you know the John Jeremiah Sullivan essay uh, back in the day which is about Michael Jackson no I don't um, it's a tremendous essay it's in his collection Pulphead which I also recommend to anybody it's also a great essay about Guns and Roses in there but uh, you can find it on the GQ website they published it when uh, Jackson died but um, it's uh, he's it's one of the best opening lines whenever I teach writing I draw on this he says how do you begin to talk about Michael Jackson without first talking about Prince Screws the third and I, until I read that essay, had never really deeply thought, oh my God, Michael Jackson's family must have been slaves. And and then it sort of talks about his interviews with um, Jet and Ebony magazines and how he gave much more to the black music press 
um, than he did to the white because there was still an element of performance when he's talking to I don't know Rolling Stone or something. It's it's even it, John Jeremiah Sullivan is, is a white writer, so I think that's something to bear in mind when you're reading it. But it's such a an interesting portrait, a, a re sort of connecting of of Michael Jackson to to black performance. It's really moving to me. Another book that's interesting um, to relate to what we're talking about that uh, was, uh, I think it was episode seven, definitely first season of Songbook, I'm sure it was episode seven, was Zakia Sewell. Uh-huh. She brought in this book called The Folk. Traditional musics are characterised in a certain way. Very interesting links to this and absolutely kind of recalibrated my brain about certain elements of, you know, me writing about folk music. You know, I write folk music column for The Guardian and, and it's and I'm, I've always been Adam from day one. It's not just about you know, white people singing, you know, whatever white folk music is. And, you know, I've, I've made sure, hopefully, oh, I, I could try and keep this as broad as possible and, you know, kind of expand, expand things to look at, you know, traditional musics of other countries and other cultures. Um, but that's a fantastic, you know, quite academic read, but a really interesting read. And Zakia is just brilliant. Mm-hmm. On There's a brilliant bit where Hanif writes about um, watching Amazing Grace, the film about Aretha Franklin's gospel album from 1972, how its makers seem to have understood that the audience is part of the stage, a part of the experience. Um, and I love that acknowledgement. You know, um, I know the first rule of live music writing is don't mention the audience, you know, because they're not as relevant. You're writing about the artist. But again, like all these kind of no-nos in writing, I think if there's something about a reaction that says something interesting and new about that experience, mm-hmm. do put it in. And where do you stand on that? writing about the audience in terms of um, music writing? I don't... I'm very happy to do that. And if there's a rule, I instinctively... I seem very (laughs) mild-mannered and polite, but I instinctively want to break it. Um, Secretly savage. Yes, secret rebel. No, you are. You're actually not secretly savage. Well, a little bit. Iron fist, velvet glove. (laughs) Yes. Um, Do you know what? One of... A very early film, a music film that I saw that my dad... is my dad's favourite film. It's Jazz on a Summer's Day. Oh, yeah. And so much of that is about watching the audience. And I think in a way that has shaped how I see a lot of mu- sort of any study of music, really. Actually, Summer of Soul is yes. about the audience. Yes, yeah, is about the performers, yeah. And I think it's slightly weird to sort of completely divorce. You know, if I thought about self-esteem, mm. it's about that creation of community, which actually is very much... Uh, one of the things that I love about Hanif's book and the, what he's writing about in general, is this sense of connection that music can can bring and this sort of sense of community. And a lot of that's to do with the connection to something greater. And I think that's a magical thing, not to get too woo-woo, but, you know, when you're at a gig, it's, it, you know, the performer on their own or their audience on their own are sort of nothing. And then you have mm. this magical thing filling the air, which yeah. is uniting us all. Yeah. Um, and, well, you know, whether that's a pop concert or whether it's, church you know mm. yeah yeah definitely um you know how do you make connections in interesting ways as well you know um Sun Ra with the science fiction of Octavia Butler and yeah. the first black astronaut you know kind of those things that you can see where they're connected but the way he writes about them really interesting Beyonce performing at the Super Bowl and him thinking about all the jobs he's hated yeah. um I was wondering what connections you found interesting or if there's any bits of the book that really spoke to you that we haven't spoken about uh I did really like particularly that um Beyonce one I remember watching that performance when I was actually on the trip that is in my book later and I was watching that performance sitting in a bar in Memphis and um and I also then later read 
and he's talking about the the sort of early days of this book and how that had come to him in Memphis as well, sort of actually just down oh. the road from where that bar was, in the Stax Museum and thinking oh, about, you know, place. yeah, completely. But he was sort of talking about how the book had grown out of rage, really, initially. And then he wanted to find something that was more celebratory. Actually, that was something I, I wrote some notes, Judith. Um, <laughs> Proper journalist referring to her notebook. I'm just, sometimes my head is a sieve. Um, (laughs) Well, there were two things, actually. That sort of celebratory element. He talks, there's a very good episode of On Being with Krista Tippett, um, where he is a guest. And he's talking about sorrow, which obviously, you know, right up my boulevard. And um, he talks about music and it helping you... uh, learning a way to mourn in a way that isn't rooted in sadness or a longing for return, but in a way that is celebratory and luminescent. And Mm. I think that runs through this whole book. Mm, There's something luminous about it. Even when he's talking about awful things that black performers had to go through, there's still something luminous in the way that he describes it that is still celebrating them. Thinking about the South and that, I'm suddenly thinking of, you know, Second Line and in New Orleans and those wonderful... You know, um, parades and funerals. And, yeah. yeah. It was just one more thing that I wanted to mention. There's a really lovely passage where he is talking, because his mother dies. And he's also talking, he talks about his mother and he talks about his father. And there's a lovely bit about when his dad would get home from work and he would sit in the car just for a minute or two and he could hear his dad playing jazz loudly in the car. Mm, yeah. And then he would get out and come into the family home. And I just, that stayed with me because I think so many of us do that. It's just like, here's a little, here's a minute when I can just be myself. Yeah. And music helps me get there. And this is the sort of strange cocoon. And then he has to go in to his home and be a father to, you know, children without without a mother. And mm. yeah, there's something very, very moving to me. Yeah, that's a beautiful bit. And I love hearing that from you, somebody who's written so brilliantly about cars and music and uh, <laughs> the whole experience. Yeah, it's my happy place, being in my car, oh. going through the hills, listening to You've sorts. got good driving music country where you are. Oh, yeah. And, yeah, kind of, well, when I wrote the last chapter of my book about the prefab sprout, mm. um, Paddy McLean track, um, I told the megahertz, that was this, one of the most spiritual experiences of my life, that accidentally coming on a Spotify algorithm, you know, that never happens, a Spotify algorithm, algorithms. And that happening, I mean, thinking, I'm not going home. This is, it's five minutes driving home. This is 22 minutes. I'm driving around these hills um, until it finishes. Mm. And it was just one of those amazing moments. Um, yeah, you might be listening to this in the car and having us cocooning you. <laughs> We're not going to sit. Um, but, um, yeah, something fascinating about, about that. Um, a private space, especially if it's just you and the music. Mm. Yeah. There's a great bit in the famous Mary Clayton story about her singing and Give Me Shelter, in her pyjamas and rollers. Um, you know, she miscarried shortly after doing that performance, which is pretty well known, but the writing about it is so beautiful. Um, I also wanted to mention Johan Koshy's review of the book in The Guardian, which said the book is about the mundane fight for individuality against the depersonalising effects of racism. And... You know, the style of the book, you know, helps this argument along so beautifully, I think. Just so wonderful. Yeah, absolutely. I thank you so much, Laura, for bringing along A Little Devil in America in praise of black performance by Hanif Abdurakib, which is published by Penguin. Um, so, um, now we come to the end of the podcast. I want some more recommendations from you. Well read, Laura Barton. Book recommendations. My brain at this time of year, this is sort of early in the year, and as you mentioned, I run the stage at 
Green Man Festival, <laughs> which is the spoken word stage. And so I spend a lot of time reading all the books for that. My brain becomes <laughs> this sort of big churn of, of music books and other potential books. Um, last year we had Michael Han on, and as I mentioned him before, he was my editor, so I'm biased, but he wrote this brilliant book about the new wave of British heavy metal. I am not a heavy metal fan. I mean, are we, if we're classing ACDC, I love ACDC. <laughs> but um, it's such an entertaining book. It's just full of anecdote and ridiculousness and, yeah. and excess and and also, what's the opposite of success? I mean, it's just sort of they're British people trying to, you know, compete in the in the rock and roll <laughs> world and it's hilarious. Um, and there was a brilliant um, live element to uh, Michael Hans' book events around this last year. Yeah. I, I, I was, um, there was a water pistol involved, remember? Which a I water got, pistol, um, there was... Pyro in inverted commas. Um, I I think he just lit an indoor firework. <laughs> or was there? Yeah, it was a play version of some. Yes, of I got you to acted, be, didn't I you? was uh, Lars Ulrich <laughs> for the a first time, fit. and that, I think so. Yes, I very much enjoyed that role. <laughs> um, so that I loved Kate Mollison's uh, Sound Within Sound. <gasps> Amazing book. I love Kate. Another promo. Sorry, no. book season one. Um, I loved the episode of Kate. <laughs> She's so informed. <laughs> anyway, um, Laura, do you have a book song for us? Indeed, to I do. Um, so the earliest music that I remember listening to um, was Sir John Betjeman, the Poet Laureate's um, re- music recording. So in the 70s, the producer, Jim Parker, got him to record some of his poetry and then set it to music. And there's everything from like reggae to strings to whatever. Reggae? Mm, wow. And for some reason, <laughs> I mean, slightly odd. But um, he... These are the, I don't know actually really how my mum came across them. But so when I was born, she was listening to these records, um, Banana Blush and Late Flowering Love. And there's a track on one of them called Mifanwi and Mifanwi at Oxford. And it is one of my desert island discs. Oh. And it's just, you know, that sounds, a lot of Betjeman's poetry is about wonderful women. But it's also about so much more. What's the music like for that one as well? It's quite stringly. I'm a sucker for sort of a cello. So mm. it's like that. But it's there's a humour and a flicker to it. And um, and it's a little bit choral. And it's wistful. And it's terribly English. But um, I just, I absolutely love that track. Sort of pastoral. Yes. Sense, yeah. Yeah, I yeah, think yeah. I've got Virginia Astley in my head. Though, oh, it's not quite, in the middle of our Venn diagram. I love quite. good old Astley. <laughs> it's not quite Astley, but there's actually in that programme about bells. Yeah. Um, oh, amazing! I think yeah. that track is used. Yeah, um, it is. Yeah, Fanwy is used in in that one. Oh, yeah, that is. Oh, yeah, because he to starts it. listing all the bells that are <gasps> in Oxford. I didn't realise it was that. Mm-hmm. It's wonderful. Yeah. yeah, thank you so much, Laura, for that brilliant book song. Those great recommendations and for bringing me, as I said before, a little devil in America. Thank you so much for being thank my you. guest today. It's lovely to see you yeah, professionally. You, yes, <laughs> <laughs> and. Um, you know, I could have. I, I think we slightly may have touched on what it's like to be a woman in music journalism, which is a T-shirt I still need to make, mm-hmm. and I wish I'd made it for the self-esteem gig I'm going to this evening. But maybe next time. Yeah, um, so yeah. We are. So, uh, so we shall we? Uh, shall we go to the Strokes together in the summer? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, I'm, I'm not wearing that shirt. Come on, it doesn't fit me. Come on, <laughs> <laughs> it's long gone to the charity shop <laughs> or in the bin. Anyway, that aside, thank you, Laura, for being my guest today. Thank you. Um, thank you, everybody, for listening and. Um, enjoying my various diversions into rabbiting with Laura. This is like being in the pub with Laura Barkin and Jude Rogers, everyone. Um, Songbook episodes are up now on Apple Podcasts and all your usual streaming services. Please like and subscribe and tell everybody. It helps get us known and gets more people listening. Um, And we'll see you next week. 
This has been a White Rabbit and Carmelite Studios production. Presented and written by Jude Rogers. Music by David Holmes. Episode producer Jake Alderson. Editor Dan Jones. to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.